Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And uh, we're pleased to have as our guest this week, Nolan Higdon, who is the author of The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news literacy education. Uh, and uh, Nolan, thank you for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is cool. Yeah, and, and so... Um, I suppose just you know broadly right now the, you know, the 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 context in which we are having this discussion or the moment in which we're recording this uh, is obviously everyone's got a heightened awareness uh especially with election day being just a few days away uh and whether people end up listening to this now or after everyone's sensitive and and looking for things in the media that could be disinformation operations, as they like to term them, um, that could be designed to throw the election into Donald Trump's favor. Um, and, and then that being said, there are also conservatives who are playing this game as well and saying, you know, there might be something that Joe Biden's doing that's trying to uh, disinform the public and boost Joe Biden's prospects. So we see this like paradigm now where everyone consumes, you know, looking for weaponized, quote unquote, fake news. And I suppose maybe that's the best way to get into what you were trying to unpack here and why you like what brought you to want to outline the fake news problem in the way that you did, because certainly um, you know, th this book came at a time when it was being more viscerally felt by people than in, it, at least in the last 15 or 20 years. Certainly, if you go back 15 to 20 years, I don't remember having these kinds of pervasive conversations. Yeah, I wrote, um, you know, I, I had the idea for this book about a, a decade ago, honestly. And, um, at the time, I couldn't find anyone who really would get behind. I wanted to work on it as a dissertation. I couldn't get anybody who would work on it with me. And then um, it was even tougher to get it as a book because it touched a lot of um, taboos. Uh, you know, you, you if you criticize uh, legacy or traditional media for publishing false content, um, it gets you out of a lot of circles. And if you criticize Democrats, that means you're out of Republican circles. And if you do the same for Republicans here at Democrat circles. So it's tough to kind of get someone um, behind it. And I'd always worked in writing these um, articles and pieces about basically fake news um, prior to the book being released. Um, but I never kind of went and, and made a case for the totality of fake news until 2015, 2016. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton used this term to say that Trump supporters were believing fake news and Trump and his infinite wisdom uh, capitalize upon that, and he used fake news to dismiss any content or reporting he found problematic. And so, all of a sudden, coming out of 2016, and and these uh, you know fears over social media and the Russians and all this nonsense, um, there was a fixation on fake news. And I was actually kind of happy for a moment that finally people were talking about something I'd been interested in for quite some time. But uh, quickly, the conversation devolved into a hyperpartisan discussion of. Um, Republicans attacking Democrats, CNN and MSNBC as being fake news, and Democrats attacking the Russians and Trump and online as fake news. And what I wanted to do with this book was say, like, look, my dedication is not to a political party. It's to democracy. And democracy works best when we have fact-based reporting that informs our decisions. Um, and so if we're really going to – and it, fake news disrupts that effort. And so if we're really going to deal with the fake news problem, we need to understand – the problem comprehensively. And so I wrote this book to say, here's the sources it comes from. It's on all sides of the ideological spectrum. Here's how it's weaponized. And here's what we can do to mitigate its influence. As we get into these issues, um, and, and Ronnie and I have questions for you, I thought one thing that was really good is to make it clear and abundantly evident to people that this isn't a 21st century phenomenon. It doesn't just exist within uh, digital media. It's not, it's not really even just like a unique issue within Facebook and, and Twitter and, and the fact that we have social media platforms that in fact you can tie all of this back 
through uh, centuries, um, if not, you know, m- millennia that have uh, uh, the history that we've all lived and you document throughout civilization, these examples. And I'm, I'm, I'd like you to share some of the more appropriate examples that stand out to you or, or that you think people need to keep at the front of their minds as they think of what fake news is and is not. Yeah, I took an expansive definition that fake news is any uh, misleading or false content presented as legitimate news. Um, and I, I saw it coming from, you know, um, political parties, uh, our country and other countries, uh, satirists, uh, self-interested actors, and even members of the traditional press. And I gave, you know, painstakingly went into examples of these different um, fake news producers and how they've used these technologies. Um, and, you know, I, I try and point out in, in the text that it, really we need to get used to the idea of deconstructing every news piece of news content we come in contact with. We, we've got to get out of this lazy sensibility where we say, oh, I trust this news outlet, not that one. Um, you know, I, I trust this source, not that one. Um, we really have to, to look at it because even well-trusted news outlets, like a lot of people trust the New York Times. And historically, the New York Times has done a lot of great reporting and there's a lot of great journalists who work there. Um, but they've also produced fake news. I mean, you can look at Jason Blair wrote hundreds of stories for the Times and thousands of stories in his career that were fake news um, to further his career. Stephen Glass did the same thing at, at New Republic. Um, and then, of course, in online sectors, it's a lot easier. You can look at folks like Alex Jones, who have you know, made a career and very lucrative career off fake news. Um, so those members of the traditional traditional press, I think, um, we need to have more discussions about those. And it's not just individual rogue actors. You know, it's also can be comprehensive failures of the press. You can go back to the 2003 invasion of Iraq or the financial reporting around the Great Recession or the political reporting around Hillary Clinton or many of the discourses around Russiagate. Um, these are massive failures of um, traditional journalism. So I spend some time trying to get people to get out of the habit of that. Um, I also try and get people out of the habit of one country versus another. You know, I document how the USSR and then Russia, um, countries like Germany and Britain, China produce fake news, but but so is the U.S. Um, we've produced, you know, fake news here uh, coming from our government. You know, probably one of the, the biggest stories was the lies around Vietnam, um, where members of the press on the government payroll uh, maintained this lie in Vietnam. And some degree, there's an analogy made there of what happened in, in Iraq in 2003. Um, and there's a long history of uh, members of our government, like our intelligence community, using fake news to control what happens domestically. I mean, you can look at the way they went after sort of the, the civil rights movement and things like that and try to say that, you know, King and others were Russian operatives. Uh, so I point out those stories. And then political parties, it, it, it's it's funny how it's like the, the easiest thing to tell people, and you think it would be the easiest to convince people, but everyone has, not everyone, I guess, a lot of people have like, this cult-like addiction to their party. So if I start rallying on you know, the Republicans and all their fake news and Democrats sit there and they clap and they think I'm doing great research. But then I go into like, you know, the Democrats use of fake news, you know, with like Rachel Maddow and the Russiagate stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, they put on their like grimace and they get upset. Um, and the same thing goes for Republicans. They love hearing me talk about fake news on the left. But once they start getting into problems with Trump, they grimace. Um, so, in the book, I make this case that, like, look, both political parties make fake news. Both political parties benefit from it. I would argue that um, Republicans are more effective at it. They're better at it. But both of them um, do create fake news. And, and, again, it goes back to this this idea that if um, we're really going to address the problem, you have to understand that it's coming from all these different areas. You can't say, like, my fake news producers are okay, but all the rest are bad. Um, we need a much more nuanced approach. You know, I think that there's like, maybe it's just because um, I've only been alive for so long, you know, that like you think that it's worse now than it's ever been. Uh, But I think there is some truth to that, at least in my lifetime, where I feel like the election of Donald Trump has actually changed the media for the worse. Uh, In a way, I haven't really experienced the what I can compare it to is maybe in the um, in the in the like days or months uh, ahead of the Iraq war, but I was like still in high school. So I don't quite remember how bad the media was, but 
I particularly when it comes to the Russia Gate narrative, the last four years have been so insane. Where I've seen anybody who's been critical of like war, of the Democratic Party, of um, you know some of the kind of insane conspiracy theories about Donald Trump being backed by like Putin. Everybody's just automatically painted with this brush of like you're a Russian asset. Now people are Chinese assets. Um, do you feel, even though you're saying obviously there's this history of uh, of this sort of like media, you know, game, do you feel like things are worse right now, it, comparing to like in the last decade, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I would, and I share a lot of your concerns. You know, when I was in um, high school, those were during the uh, Bush years, and uh, you know, the first two years of Bush and 9/11 and all that stuff, and I watched the right wing go off the cliff. Um, they went from like having these ideas that were, you know, unpopular out of the mainstream to just believing like crazy things with insane justifications and calling everybody a terrorist and apologist. Um, and the Democrats, I mean, I always knew they were like an elitist party of neoliberals, but at least they seemed like somewhat stable and sane. But I concur with you that in the last four years, I watched them go over the cliff with the Republicans um, with this Russiagate madness and to, to the point now where, um, you know, they're like you said, any story that they find problematic, just like Trump uses fake the term fake news for any story he mm -hmm. finds problematic. They say the same thing about Russia. Well, it looks like Russia. Russia's fingerprints are on it. We can't prove it yet, but this must be Russia. Um, that kind of, um, you know, musing in public by journalists is, is just disgusting and, and dangerous. And what I keep thinking is we have, you know, tech companies have gotten on board with this stuff with the Democratic Party by – um, censoring certain content. Um, and uh, the Democratic Party has gone now without evidence. They make these baseless claims that people are associated with Russians, just like the Republicans used to do with terrorists. Uh, my question for these folks is, let's say you, you, know, you win this election, Biden becomes president. What's going to happen to all these institutions? I mean, are you going to trust the news media? Are you going to trust social media? Are you going to trust the Democrats? Or are they now in the same box as the Republicans? It's a you know, I, I'm sort of I, I share your 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 uh, fears, but my fears go even deeper in that I don't know how a democracy can survive when these people have thrown out all principles or dedications to truth, transparency, and evidence to win an election. Um, something that the Republicans have been doing for decades. It's a really scary place we find ourselves. I would like to ask you a question about where you place uh, something that Rania and I have have talked about a lot on this show is the, 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 visceral rea the visceral reaction that we see, especially from figures in the establishment media, to um, the existence of people who are working at state-funded media outlets, uh, particularly when they're in countries that are seen as um, great powers that are competing with the U.S. So obviously I'm talking about Russia, talking about Chinese-funded outlets. We also have Iranian-funded outlets. There are um, Venezuelan. Uh, Venezuela has funded media before. And, you know, it seems like um, within the paradigm of fake news, there's been this increased effort to censor people who are working at these organizations on the basis that, well, they're challenging the United States, so we need to do something about them. And they're, they'll, they'll go after what they're printing as if what they're doing is unique and that there are, that's something that doesn't happen at all other media outlets. So I'm curious how you approach in the media economy the existence of state-funded media and their place in the spectrum of producing fake news. Yeah, I mean, I go through this in the book that state-funded media is a, you know, it's a contributing factor to fake news. Countries do produce false content through publicly funded media. Um, publicly funded media can also be beneficial in giving the, the public a voice um, to put true news, but it's a mix. You need to, to be able to deconstruct all of that content. Um, where I think your story gets to some more, or sorry, your question gets to some more complexities. And, you know, you can go look at like national advisor, uh, national intelligence reports, and it's very clear that the national intelligence community recognizes that we are in the midst of an information war. Um, the, I mean, people talk about hacking and stealing information and all that stuff, but, but part, of, part of it is fake news as well. So this isn't like it's not understood. And these same intelligence folks are 
briefing members of Congress. Unfortunately, Congress is using this information in a very politicized way to say, like, you know, we got to stop the Russians and the Chinese. Well, it's like the Russians and the Chinese are doing what the U.S. is doing. It's part of the war. And um, and we think we're going to censor our way out of it. Number one, uh, censorship generally doesn't work. Number two, it usually popularizes content. And number three, it usually creates a chilling effect that shuts down the very type of dialogue that's essential to a functioning democracy. Um, but on top of all that, uh, we're trying to use these tech companies, which are independent private entities, to censor certain content. And they sell it to the public in an easy way, right? Like originally it's like we're going to censor, you know, performance artists like Alex Jones. And then we're going to, you know, censor white separatists and white nationalist content. Of course, I don't lose a tear that none of that content is disgusting content is out there. However, once you empower these folks to censor that content, they can censor anything else. And I, I think that's what we're seeing here in, in the United States. The, the, the part that the cognitive dissonance, in my opinion, is that the same way these tech companies censor content for the U.S. government, they also censor content for the Chinese government, um, and they will censor content for other governments. So in that way, um, they're not censoring content out of some um, duty to serve democracy or American patriotism. They're doing it for their bottom line, and some of their biggest buyers are you know, the United States government here, Chinese government overseas. And furthermore, by working with the U.S. government, in the mind of many tech companies, this limits the potential they'll get broken up, as these antitrust cases will break them up if they're working with the government. Um, and so that's a long way of saying there's a lot of vested interests in censoring that have nothing to do with actually combating fake news or, or serving democracy. Um, and Russia and things like this are scapegoats to distract from the real problem and the real um, process that's going on here. Yeah, it's interesting with the Silicon Valley companies like working basically hand in hand with the U.S. government to censor on their behalf. Um, and uh, in particular, it's like it, it's actually kind of frightening to me because they're I mean, they're, you know, obviously there we have a First Amendment. The U.S. government isn't supposed to censor, but they've essentially like hired these middlemen, these like uh, think tanks that receive funding from the State Department, like the Atlantic Council, to then, and then they get hired by Facebook and Twitter to advise them on what should be censored. That's literally what's happening right now. Like that's like a loophole for US government censorship and people don't seem to see it like that um, at all. And I think that it's, it's quite frightening too because a lot of people on the left, and I don't know what your take on this, but I think a lot of people on the left, not all of it, but there's a certain segment of the left that's sort of like been encouraging social media companies to censor, you know, Alex Jones, right? Or to like censor fascists and Nazis. And while, you know, it worked, like, you know, you got Facebook to take down Alex Jones, we've also seen Facebook and Twitter taking down accounts that just happen, like any, like they, they just take down Venezuelan and Iranian accounts for being in Venezuela and Iran. And they've taken down a few, like quite a few left media outlets uh, that nobody really cared that they erased, but they just completely erased them. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I, you know, like I said, it's, it's, I've watched the last four years of, you know, the democratic party, but also liberals, um, go over just the, the deep end um, during the war on terror. You know, I like so many leftists was just disgusted by the fact that we were building the surveillance state and we were targeting it at, um, you know, Muslims and activists. We were, we were watching people overseas. We were drone striking people. We were torturing people. We basically thrown civil liberties out. And so many of us on the left were just disgusted by this behavior because even though um, some of these people may have been whatever, quote unquote, bad people, we had principles of human rights. We had principles of freedom of speech. We had anti-censorship. We had privacy principles. In the Trump era, it really seems like leftists have now joined many of the, their former enemies of the Bush era in shedding those principles um, that now, you know, just defeating Trump at all costs um, and really means all costs, means shedding our principles. And, and I think that's a really just dangerous, dangerous spot to be. Um, and I think you're right that this left sensibility of getting comfortable um, really shows like an ignorance of, of history. So many times the um, opportunities have been presented to the American public 
to reduce the civil liberties for some group that is hated, but it's almost immediately turned against progressives. Um, you can go back to like the Red Scare at the beginning of the 20th century and again in the middle of the 20th century. Um, those were used supposedly at fighting like totalitarianism and promoting freedom, the powers that were given to government. And then those same laws, Espionage Act and Sedition Acts, were, were used against progressive groups and civil rights um, movement and things like that. So um, I think it just shows like a, a, a vapid understanding of history, uh, a myopic understanding of what's going on at the moment, and no concern for what's going to happen after. Um, like I keep saying, regardless of whether it's through election or, or through death, um, Donald Trump will be gone one day. And what principles are you going to cling to? I mean, what, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to cite as an illustration of why you have credibility? It's going to be really tough for a lot of these people. So you talk about what the consequences could be, and, and you do spend time in your book talking about the history of this and, and what happens when Americans are feeling this anxiety. And uh, just, just to raise a couple examples here, you, know, you do mention that the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1645 responded to these fears um, and, and were moved to outlaw certain content. Um, and you mentioned the Alien and Sedition Act um, that was imposed as, as fake news threatened uh, John Adams' presidency. Uh, and then there's the Cold War where there was censorship of content and an escalation and pressuring groups. And so, you know, I, I suppose um, I, I want you to maybe respond to, you know, where this moment fits in that continuum. But but perhaps you could give your own viewpoint about, you know, whether is there is there, first of all, any policy response that is needed? And then two, if if there isn't. Or if there is, um, I'd say then, and in addition to this, do what can people do to be more uh, aware of, because uh, I know that you outline in your book what people can do to detect fake news. Yeah, um, I think, you know, from a, from a policy perspective, we, we really need to transform um, education in this country. And at some level, it's actually transforming it back to some of the principles we used to have. Um, local education in this country, uh, the argument for it was not job skills. It was not career training. It was to promote democratic citizens, um, good patriots, if you will. Uh, I know Donald Trump means something different when he says patriotic education, but um, I think our education system needs to be more fixated on serving democracy rather than serving the market. I mean, we, you know, clearly in my lifetime, uh, we've had, you know, three financial collapses, so the, the market clearly doesn't serve us. Uh, so I think in, in um, our schools, we better to serve democracy. And a major pillar of democracy is journalism. So not only teaching students what fake news is and how to spot it, but what journalism is and how to use it. Um, you know, teaching people what the principles of democracy are. Some studies show that only about 20% of our high schools have civics as a requirement for graduation. Um, that's embarrassing for a supposed democracy. America's now... Um, drop down. We're no longer a full democracy. We're a flawed democracy. Some scholars call us an oligarchy. Um, so for all those reasons, I think we need to, to really restore democracy and restore principles. And the reason I keep you know, advocating for principles, I see things like freedom of speech, freedom of the press, academic freedom, um, where liberals who used to defend those things now no longer defend them because of the person they're associated with. Um, so they don't really care about freedom of the press because the, the, the current case, you know, against Julian Assange, they don't like Assange. And I, and I try and tell them it's not about Assange. I don't care if you hate Assange. It's about freedom of the press. Um, you know, there, there's similar cases against like freedom of speech, like Abby Martin. I don't care if you don't like Abby Martin. This is about freedom of speech. It's not about Abby Martin. Um, so I think, uh, you know, an education system could make the case to folks that you need to have principles and defend them. Building credibility is really important. Um, uh, caring about these principles are important. You know, I end the book with a quote from Winston Churchill that um, essentially says that, you know, democracy is the worst system except for all the rest have been tried it from time to time. And what we mean by that is as bad and problematic as a democracy is, it's the best we've come up with. It's a great alternative to like a totalitarian regime, in my opinion. Um, and, and in that, we should remind ourselves that uh, democracy is a 24-hour-a-day job. So having those principles, defending those rights, reading up on news, making informed decisions, uh, it's a full-time job. If you want to not do any of that stuff, there's plenty of authoritarian regimes that will uh, draft you 
and they're looking for mindless consumers. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, like, how is it, like you said, it's, it is like tyrannical, but nobody views it as such. And that's actually what makes it so scary is like, we do have this really kind of authoritarian control over information right now because it's in the hands of these, you know, this handful of, of Silicon Valley companies that are working with the U.S. government. And, but people have the perception that we do have some sort of freedom that we don't. And so it's like hard to get people to care, especially like you said, when it's the, the, this, this tactic of really uh, destroying the reputation and character of, of an individual and then making it about that. Like you mentioned Julian Assange, me and Kevin have talked about on the show where it's like, instead of talking about freedom of, the, of speech and freedom of the press, it becomes about prosecuting Julian Assange for having like a bad personality. Um, and so it is quite frightening. I actually think there it's almost like more authoritarian than like just the straight up kind of authoritarianism you see in some countries that America doesn't like where, you know, everybody knows, everybody knows in Syria that like they control the information. Everyone knows they're not under some like illusion like we are here. Yeah, the uh, you know uh, Sheldon Wolin long ago called what we have here um, inverted totalitarianism, in essence that uh, the information is controlled and the ideology is so pervasive of of um, neoliberalism that we start to become so um, isolated and apathetic that we no longer participate in a meaningful way. Maybe we'll show up every four years and cast our vote. Um, though we become so fixated on on consumerism and trying to work that um, our society becomes bankrupt of any connectivity, which is essential for a democracy. And so what I hope to, to do in, in the book is kind of remind people of the importance of democracy over consumption um, and that, uh, you know, consumerism always tries to promise you the, the things that it can never deliver. Like if you ever look at a commercial for a product, notice it's always, the product is always surrounded by the things people actually want, which is love, um, time with their family, uh, socialization, um, vacation, things like that. Um, but these are things that consumerism can never deliver. So instead they show you the tube of toothpaste in the context of all that stuff. Um, so kind of deconstructing that that false world that that has been created, I think is essential. But second, not to lose sight of the fact that, and this is something I remind, students of and all my public talks too that there's a lot of fake news and a lot of horrible journalism out there but there's also a lot of great journalists doing great work and if you do the hard work to identify these people and still hold them accountable but identify them and follow their work you become a, a lot more informed member of society and you can participate in much better ways and you're more likely to organize your energy in a um, constructive direction so you know, I, I point to the work of like, um, you know, Abby Martin, Taibbi, uh, Glenn Greenwald, Mate, uh, and folks, you know, folks like that who they're brave enough to let the sources kind of guide them where they may end up and even stand up against the, the status quo. And so I think reminding ourselves we do have good people doing good work. And then we look at the process more about how do we um, maximize quantity, or sorry, maximize quality over quantity. That is, find those good journalists, find that good journalism, and cut that junk food news out of our immediate diet. And if you start looking at the problem in that way, I think it becomes a lot more optimistic and a lot more manageable. I don't know. You sound like a Russian asset to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Nolan, let me ask you because the people who listen to our show, uh, not not to litigate it, I don't, I don't, I don't think we need to sort through. Um, what happened between the the people involved, but everyone's going to know that Glenn Greenwald resigned from the Intercept, and it was in a very public way, and that there was some fallout, and that it involved something that has been at the center of a lot of accusations that the right wing are spreading fake news, and it's it's that that story about Hunter Biden's laptop and the emails, and and, and without demanding that you get into specifics of what's been said and what was reported by the New York Post. I just I want to ask you if you'd consider this specific example and 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 tell and talk through why why can't we as a public 
sort out what is fake and what is real in the story on our own? What, why, why do we need to demand that the government intervenes or that, that senators and representatives get involved with Twitter and Facebook to control our access to this material? Why, why is it so uh, threatening to democracy that the New York Post publishes this and then you know we all read it and make a determination on our own a few weeks before the election whether it's true or false? I mean, are we really that afraid about what um, this kind of material can do to us? You know, I, I promised some time ago that I would uh, stop asking myself how 2020 could get worse. But um, the story about what happened with the New York Post and Glenn Greenwald and Twitter, uh, you know, it really gives me goosebumps. And it gave me like this chilling feeling um, where, where, you know, I predicted or insinuated that we were going in this direction. But it's one of those things you predict and insinuate, but you really hope you're wrong. Um, and... Uh, to me, you know, I, I believe in people power, and I know this is something that many of our institutions, those in power, do not. But I believe that people have the power to delineate fact from fiction. Um, you don't need some fancy degree to be able to look at a New York Post story and realize it's what is or is not true about it. Um, you know, I believe parents can teach their children this, and that, it's not just a belief. Like there, there's, dem- this has been demonstrable for for years. Um, yeah, we've we've gone to this uncomfortable sensibility, though, we're allowing these institutions to make um, decisions. And, uh, you know, in, in the case of, of Twitter, I thought, you know, there is some, there are some serious problems with that article, uh, the Giuliani connection, the computer store, um, the, uh, you know, attic shaming, which those pictures were. Um, but the question of the, the legitimacy of the communications, I think is an important story if it's true, because it shows Biden corruption. But it's also legitimate if it's false. Um, and who created this and how did it get to one of the biggest newspapers? Um, but rather than even like open up that, that sort of Pandora's box, um, Twitter just censored it. And I was surprised at how many people continued to like use the, the Twitter you know, platform. Um, I'm in the process now of getting my team to, to get rid of my account um, on, on Twitter because you know, I always used it basically just to kind of look at other news content. But now, I mean, I know it's actively censoring stuff. Um, and then to, to the Glenn Greenwald point, um, I always admired the intercept. Greenwald ruffles a lot of feathers. He upsets a lot of people for his conclusions. And I think that is good in the democracy. Um, and I always admired the intercept for keeping him on the payroll. I know it couldn't have been easy with all the pressure over Russiagate and, and all this sorts of stuff, but um, they finally got to this place where getting rid of Donald Trump um, was more important than um, having any principles to journalism. And at least that's what it looks like from from Greenwald's part of the story. I'll say that. Um, and if that is the case, you know, again, it just it gives me chills. Like, where do these where do these folks go? Where do you go to do this this type of reporting? Um, and so uh I, you know, and with you that I, I have utmost faith people can delineate this stuff for themselves, but it's getting more and more difficult to be able to find it because there's such like an opaque shield of false content around legitimate journalism. You really have to get some serious knowledge about um, news media to be able to start investigating the process of how to find um, fact from fiction. I just think it's interesting to watch this sort of like, uh, I don't know, Glenn said something beyond the whole Hunter Biden story. I think Glenn said a lot of interesting things about uh, the left me- left center media in general and how it's become like super rigid and ideologically like conformist. And I don't know if you know, but Kevin, I think Kevin, are we allowed to say that, Kevin? You got kind of like a weird shout out or we think you did or are we not allowed to say that? No, it, it's fine. <laughs> you can you can mention that I, I might have well, been referred. we don't know who. We don't know who, but like Glenn wrote that he mentioned kind of in passing in his piece about how the Intercept didn't really cover the Assange trial, uh, and partly because the one freelancer who was covering it is somebody who they whose whose politics they don't like, and I assume that he was talking about Kevin because I'm not sure who else he would have been talking about. Is that, that right? But I guess yeah. my, I just, I think, but I think, I think there's, I think there's a, I just wanted to point that out. Cause I think Kevin got a shout out. Um, but I also think that there's this kind of like, I don't know how to just, it's like this, this center, like these center left media outlets 
that, you know, we talk about like the issues with them. And I think Glenn talked about the issue with the intercept, but without mentioning the fact that some of this might be coming from funding. Like, I don't think it doesn't seem to me that Pierre Omidyar, no one's ever made the accusation that he's ever interfered editorially in the intercept. But I do think at the same time, like this might be a broader issue of having a billionaire fund what you wanted to be a left media outlet. Um, is that it ends up moving in a certain direction almost by like, like almost just because that's like, like, like gravity. That's just what happens. You know what I mean? And a lot of these outlets that are like left of center, like uh, Glenn compared the intercept. He said the intercept has turned into like another Vox. Well, Vox is also funded by like a collection of corporations and people with a lot of money and like in, in venture capitalists. Right. And so you're going to see the same sort of like, like move there towards a certain kind of politics. And then a lot of these other outlets like are funded by foundation grants and like there's agendas behind those foundation grants. So I think at the end of the day, like one thing that we don't end up talking about with things like this is who funds the media and who funds the media makes a big difference. Cause it's not like necessarily the funders are sitting there telling you what you can and can't say. It's more like, you know, we know that journalists self-censor and if I'm being funded by, you know, people who have a certain ideology that I'm going to kind of know what to stay away from. Just like I wouldn't, you know, I always say this, like I wouldn't go to like Al Jazeera for news about Qatar because they're funded by the Qatari government. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people to go to RT for news about Russia. You know what I mean? I wouldn't tell people to go to Iranian outlets to, for news about Iran. And I think the same thing tends to happen with like foundation and billionaire funded media. And I guess that leaves me with the question of like, how media, how should media be funded? Like it, it's, it's, there's some lucky outlets that manage to be funded by their readers and viewers, but that is not, a, that's, that's, that's rare. It's rare for that to be sustainable for the people who are working at them. I mean, Kevin's managed to do that with shadow proof, but he can, he can speak to how difficult that is, but I guess, sorry for this like long rant, but yeah, like what, how should media be funded? Is that, is the funding structure of media at the root of some of this? Yeah, the funding funding plays a major role, um, and, and it plays a role in, in multiple ways. So one of the ways you hit upon is that um, journalists become quite, you know, aware quite quickly, and, and journalists have told us this at Project Censor for years um, that you just know that you you enter into a certain company and that you can't criticize the people who pay you, but you can do investigative stories in other areas. So you're practicing self censorship, but you justify it in the sense that the money's given you an opportunity to other to research other stuff. Um, but the other way that that money, another way that money works um, is a lot of these companies want to maximize profits. So they cut off funding to things like small markets, overseas bureaus, weekend reporting. And so you, you, the focus of um, reporters becomes more on like wealthy um, urban like settings, like big cities and things like that. So that's another way it affects it. Um, and then, also, obviously, ratings and now online engagement, and this has become, you know, a huge problem because we, we know that people are engaged to, like, divisive um, content, content with themes of hate and fear, and we knew this from the days of, like, the Soviet era. Um, Fox really figured out how to, to maximize it in the hyper-partisan era of the post-Cold War, and now um, Donald Trump has been really good for um, business. I mean, you know, you got to remember, like MSNBC was constantly changing its program, programming on the eve of, of um, Trump's candidacy because they couldn't get good ratings. Like their boring, bland coverage of the Obama years, which ignored many aspects of his presidency, weren't drawing in viewers. But Trump is great for viewers. They've called themselves the resistance, which we can talk about my problems with that label. But um, and viewers have tuned in to find out what Trump is doing. And so Trump's been really good for um, profits in that sense. And so in that way, it motivates a lot of these center left outlets to jump on board with the resistance train. It's good for business. Um, and I think, um, you know, Glenn Greenwald may have been kind of hinting at some of that in his in his letter. You know, again, this goes back to my question. What are you guys going to do after? I bet you they're hoping that either Trump wins the election or Trump starts like a podcast right away. So they have something to cover every single day. Yeah. I feel really bad for like, uh, cause I'm pretty sure I feel, I mean, I'm pretty, I feel confident Biden is likely going to win. And so I feel really bad for like all the people whose grits are just kind of going to disappear overnight because if your whole identity has been like, 
you know, I'm here to be the resistance against Trump. Like what happens to your podcast (laughs) or to your YouTube channel when like Trump disappears? Like I imagine like what's going to happen to Rachel Maddow? Like what's she going to talk about every night? (laughs) But Rania, the grift is just going to be keeping us in line and not going too far in challenging Joe Biden. You know that's going to be immediately. Oh, of course. Worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the hundred percent. But like in in tandem any, with any David Frum. And any any challenge of I mean now that David Frum has this like sort of you know I'm a white male feminist persona uh, that he's created around himself. Like I imagine people like him are going to use the Biden administration as an opportunity to defend the first black woman vice president Kamala Harris from the hordes of disgusting white supremacist Russian backed leftists who are angry that she's pushing to bomb some brown country. That's, I imagine that's yeah. going to be the kind of like a narrative that we're going to hear. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. I mean, for, um, this, this Russia thing, I think is just too, too lucrative. So it'll be weaponized against, uh, progressives um and then if they can still get the um you know trump train rolling get some readings of that that'll probably be their goal um i don't know how much they'll they'll succeed but your your question about you know funding media um you know in this country we we used to we still do to a degree much lesser we used to subsidize journalism um with the idea of creating more diverse sense of view so i think subsidizing uh, a lot more smaller outlets that focus on uh, much smaller communities would be a lot more beneficial because um, as much as like this Hunter Biden stuff is is intriguing and it, it deals with Biden who's going to be president, there's a lot of things going on in, in um, folks' communities that I think are a lot more impactful and meaningful that, that desperately need reporting. And like if you remember all the attention around Flint, which Barack Obama just dismissed and now the guy who poisoned the water is friends of the Democrats – um, that was happening in over 300 other cities. So, you know, all those stories deserve to be told and the public deserves to, in those communities deserves to be told what they can do about it. Um, and if we're so fixated on these handful of national media outlets that are for profit, we miss a lot of opportunities to ameliorate those problems. And there's also the people that are in media, right? Like the, the media class is made up of a certain segment of society of people who typically, um, are from middle, like upper middle class households. Uh, and not that everybody has the same viewpoint necessarily, but you know, like life experience for that, for that, that class of society is much different than working people who grew up working class or poor. Um, and so you do end up getting this kind of warped view of the world from the media because they all happen to be of the same class. Like they might be more racially diverse than they used to be. Uh, but as far as class goes, like, it's just not the case. It's like all these like sort of coastal, you know, urban elites uh, who, who have a certain kind of politics and a certain kind of culture. And so that's another thing that like, and I think I think the media is also like another aspect of it that's made it harder for people outside of that class to enter into it is that, you know, journalism is not a lucrative industry. You're not going to, I mean, very few people, except for those who become like celebrities on CNN or like, you know, get a column at the New York Times, which isn't common, get to make huge salaries. So, you know, people who do end up going into media tend to be people who have like, you know, like wealth behind them, like family wealth. So they can afford to like just do, you know, to to freelance. I, I call it like the trust fund journalists. They can afford to like live in Brooklyn and like freelance, you know, because, you know, journalism doesn't pay as much as it used to. Even 20 years ago, you could get these big grants to go do foreign reporting. Now, every article gets you like 100, 200 bucks. So, like, mm-hmm. the only way people can afford to like live that lifestyle uh, is if they, you know, their mom and dad paid for their school and, you know, they don't have to worry about rent. <laughs> um, yeah, so, anyways, and- I guess that's, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, I was going to say, no, in addition, I think you're absolutely correct. In addition to sharing class, um, and, cause, and I have to bring this up because this is a trick they use. So they'll, they'll, of course, have like one or two people on the panel who do come from like a humble background. But what they miss in that is that they share the same ideology. So they share the same like neoliberal frame. So you have the illusion of diversity in terms of surface. Um, but behind the scenes, what they're actually saying is like a dedication to, to neoliberalism. So you get this false idea that there's like a consensus across the country from all these diverse backgrounds of the way the world should be. And, you know, Trump is like this, 
this outlier. In fact, um, you know, tr Trump is an outlier, but this consensus is, is false in a lot of sense. And I think you saw that during the Democratic primaries. Um, you know, they're really going after things like uh, universal health care, $15 minimum wage, Green New Deal, um, uh, reparations. Remember, Marianne Williamson brought that up on the stage and was just sort of like looked at puzzling by the, the people. Um, after COVID, it's interesting, like all those things like UBI and universal health care, $15 minimum wage, reparations, all of a sudden they don't seem so radical. But the way the corporate the corporate press, they share an ideology that like you would never do those things. You would never give universal basic health care, never give universal um, basic income or health care. So as a result, um, it's introduced to the public as like radical and out of the mainstream. But if you look around the world, these ideas aren't that radical. And if you ask American voters, they're overwhelmingly supported. Um, but this is the, the trick they play when you get sort of one ideology um, in your programming and you give the illusion of diversity. A lot of people start to think they're crazy for believing things like universal health care, Green New Deal, et cetera. Uh, now, one thing I did want to ask you, because you do tackle it in your book, and I think I have a slightly um, different view, except I don't know that's entirely in conflict with your analysis, but uh, you, you talk about the way that uh, the news media embraced or was kind of forced into embracing the cultural rise of, uh, as you call them, fake news programs, like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and... Um, how they incorporated certain aspects of that into uh, their news model, like as a form of entertaining viewers and keeping them glued to their stations. So uh, could you could you just take a moment to kind of like lay out why you feel this is underpinning a lot of the uh, proliferation of fake news? Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, uh, the idea of like making news entertain more entertaining and sensational, you know, goes back decades. Um, but in particular, what, what John Stewart um, demonstrated for a lot of like liberal viewers um, was that there was a, a story to be told there that if you uh, lampooned your ideological enemy and you use more of like a WWE or World Wrestling Entertainment frame to news media, um, people would tune in. They want to be on the good side and they want to mock the other side. And, and um, Stewart was stealing this liberal audience, you know, where upwards of like three fourths of young people were saying that they got their news from The Daily Show. And MSNBC had desperately been struggling to try and find programming that worked. At the same time, Fox had long ago showed that like a hyper partisan world wrestling entertainment um, attack on liberals was good for their conservative programming. So MSNBC started to adopt um, kind of this daily show Fox News model. And then um, the two 24-hour networks kind of made this historic decision to go to war with each other. So the WWE narrative picks up even more. Now that the, the um, Keith Olbermann and Bill O'Reilly are going after each other, and Jon Stewart's like going after O'Reilly, and Jon Stewart is on CNN. And um, the line between so-called fake satire news and legitimate 24-hour journalism, if such a thing ever existed, um, was eroded in, the, in that era. And, and so I, my question to you is, you know, I, I, I feel like in some ways, if, if, if you take last week tonight right now as, like, as, as the example that is still unfolding, you know, they actually have people who are working for the show performing journalism that you see other outlets not performing. So it almost is like with the rise of the, these shows um, uh, that it basically expo exposes the, the very flaws within our media system. And, and in a way it, it foists upon them a responsibility that they really shouldn't have to fill um, except in, I guess, a tribute to some of it, not all. I'd say that, you know, between Ronnie and myself, we have a, a huge issue with the way Last Week Tonight has treated many of the foreign policy issues. But as far as domestic policy, especially when it comes to prisons and immigration and some other things, you know, they far and away outperform even the, like, CNN and MSNBC as they fit within the, like, Mick resistance, so to speak. Um, and so, 
Um, it, I, I'm wondering what your view is, is, is on, 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 like, we shouldn't necessarily have like an expectation for the entertainment news programs. It's more like they expose the way in which our own media institutions are failing us. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of like being the nicest guy in prison. It's like, they're, they're doing like, they're giving you a perspective and more information than you would get elsewhere. But that's really only because the 24 hour news networks have set the bar like so low. Um, so some, some degree of um, ex- exposing or critiquing uh, traditional news media is good, of course. Like I, I totally support that. And, and I like it being done through a satirist frame. But when we start to replace that for legitimate journalism or we start to conflate that with legitimate journalism, that's when I get really concerned. Also, how long do we laugh um, at these traditional news outlets uh, before we actually change something? Are we just entertaining ourselves with how bad our, our news outlets are? And if that's the case, like, who are we laughing at, ourselves or them? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, and I think that's entirely reasonable. Uh, and the other question I have for you, because it's just been sort of my own objection as someone who's, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pro, I'm not a professional at all, but I've tried to do some more classic forms of satire and, and, you know, even, even Rania here or there has found the utility and, you know, I'm a journalist first and foremost, to the extent that I've done anything, it's rather amateurish. Um, but that being said, I don't really feel like satire is fake news or something that like I need to go above and beyond to help people be able to detect or that I have to fear I'm degrading democracy when this is this is spread. So if anything, you know, producing this and having it out there, um, you know, depending on, you know, whatever it is that I were to write, um, I mean, again, it, it's almost like it just exposes the way in which our media literacy and or democracy has degraded. So like, do I have a greater responsibility to make sure that I tag this stuff or is it just that like people, like somehow we have to improve people's abilities to detect what is and is not, uh, you know, satire. Well, as I don't really think it's fake news because I'm not trying to deceive people. So if people believe something that is false, then that mostly speaks to, um, like their inability to read the news. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, mean, I do think uh, in, intent is important. Um, but if it's, uh, you know, the, the key there is sort of like false or, or misleading. Uh, are you making it clear that it is um, satire, et, et cetera? Um, but I, but I, I, on another side of that argument, though, I think, which is really important, and it's something you say that I completely agree with, I don't blame the satirists um, for making fake news, and I don't blame the satirists because the fake news has led people to, you know, act in a democracy in a way that that's, you know, problematic. Um, it really is up to, to training the individual to how to to distinguish um, false content from legitimate journalism. And let me be very clear: like we were talking earlier about free speech, I think there's a, a central role for um, comedians in society comedians critique they make us laugh at things we need to address um they also push the envelope we don't know where the um sort of like agreed upon um border is on what is or isn't appropriate um but until they find it so they have an, they have a great role to play so i'm not like anti um comedy in that sake um but i do think that if we we overdo it if we replace this always laughing at the system and laughing at journalists um, you know, kind of like we did with Trump or laughing at his tweets or what he did to Hillary. Here's where we end up. You know, we have literally a government that can't do basic things. Um, and, and Trump is a major part of that story, but he's a part of that story. There's 40 years of history. There's voters. There's information. There's entertaining ourselves to death. So I think you have to look at the, the totality in that sense. So that'd be kind of my, my take on entertainment. Don't, don't throw it all out, but don't um, dedicate yourself to only entertainment. Yeah, and I think I would. I, I actually, I, I do. I do agree with that uh, because I think that it can't be a substitute, and also you can't expect that all news is going to entertain you when you're reading it. But you know that's where uh, things have gone, um, and also I think for a lot of people, um, they they're looking for slick productions, and it's where like 
you know, people who don't have a whole lot of money are making low budget shows like I do. And, um, I'm, I'm just doing this work on, on, on a shoestring budget and trying to make the kind of impact that I can based on limited resources. And, you know, I would argue that some of the stuff that I'm doing independently, and I'm, I think even Rania would argue some of the stuff that she would put out is, you know, be far and away better in content than what the most slick and resourced corporate news producers have available. So I think we do have to get people to see that, you know, just because it's, you know, slick and entertaining, um, that could maybe be one of your first clues that you need to be skeptical about it if it's going so far into like razzle and dazzle you wouldn't that be fair yeah uh you know and this is this is a really a really good point there was a um 2019 study done from stanford uh where they set up a fake news website on climate change and they made it abundantly clear that it was um, a sponsored ad and they made it abundantly clear it was from the fossil fuel industry and they asked these 3500 students to um, analyze it and you know, see, do they have any problems or concerns about it? And 96% of students ha- did not think the fact that fossil fuel industry funded it was a problem. And instead, they thought it, lo- it was legitimate because it looks legitimate, that it was, that it was well-organized, bright colors, it had modern um, format and features. And so to your point, that, that's definitely a, a thing we fall for, is it looks um, legitimate, so we believe it. And, and Matt Taibbi wrote about this in his book, Hate, Inc. He said, and, and I know this from you, you guys know this too, but I know this too from going like television news that the people who work in television news are paid to look like experts. They're often not experts. So we, we think because they talk in a certain way or with certainty or they use certain words or they make certain claims that, oh man, they know what they're talking. I should listen to them. But oftentimes they're just sort of these like vapid vessels who are there to, to kind of fill up time. So we, we don't want to get yeah enamored with the, the um, presentation that can sometimes distract from the falsehood. Yeah, we do outsource quite a bit of our commentary to um, celebrities, you know, people who have been in film and music are sometimes asked to, to come on and, and, and pontificate and talk about these things. We'll let our politicians come on, even though they don't may not have any, like, actual background of spending time in these issues. You know, one thing I, I remember is, uh, like, uh, I, I think of this example, I don't know if it's the best one, but the first one that comes to my head is, thinking about Senator John McCain and, you know, him being someone who could be invited on TV to talk about Syria just simply because he made a congressional trip there. And like that doesn't automatically make you an expert on Syria and what the people of the country are dealing with. But that's often how um, these newscasts treat our politicians as like they're automatic experts for having even just a delegation visit to these countries. Yeah, this happened after the um, the George Floyd murder. Um, most of the uh, guests who were on um, television news programs were politicians and so-called media experts. We heard very little from the protesters on the ground. Um, so we got this kind of distorted view of what these protesters wanted or were doing or were advocating for um, from like this ruling elite class. So, um, yeah, I think this this problem persists that we need to really ask and I have this in my fake news detection kit, like, is this really an authority or an expert on the um, topic in which they're being asked to speak? And um, I'll, I'll conclude our conversation, but uh, I do want to say that one, uh, there there was a show we did where we, uh, it was just earlier during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and we mentioned that it seemed like CNN was uh, broken for a period of time. Um, that there was like a, a, a something that was thrown off kilter in their corporate model because they were frequently having voices in the working class on to describe what was happening to them in uh, in, in the hospitals or as if they were bus drivers or um, if they worked at a grocery store or whether they were getting service industry workers to talk and asking them about whether they were allowed to wear masks and, and asking them about what they were struggling to do. They were talking to teachers and people who were impacted. And I was like, whoa, like this shows like what CNN could be. But then in like a month and a half later, it, it got back to working how it normally functions as a corporate news network. <laughs> um, yeah, they did, uh, you know, I, I saw some of that um, coverage, and I noticed they did the same thing back in um, 
07, 08. And it's very interesting. Whenever there's the potential for big economic spending, uh, they start to interview poor people. And, and I think one of the, I don't know if CNN does this on purpose, but one of the pernicious outcomes of that is I think people start to conflate these giant multi-trillion dollar deals with going to like working class and poor people. And no doubt in both cases, 08 and the present, some of that money did like the stimulus checks. Um, but man, so much of that money goes to like corporations and bailing out these like failing companies and, and subsidies for industry. Uh, but we just kind of, we, we, we focus on one side, the, the good side story of it. And we, we miss that larger element. I mean, even the way that this uh, latest stimulus package, which looks like it's not going to happen is being talked about. We're talking about um, amounts, not content, right? Like, well, it's 1.8 trillion. Well, they want a 2.2 trillion, but it's like, where is that money going? <laughs> yeah. Like, who is getting that money? Now that's lost from the conversation, but I think if you cover like uh, working class people's angst and suffering, which is legit and real, uh, people conflate the money is going there, and that you know is not all the, always the case. We learned in the Obama years. Well, at, at least Nancy Pelosi was so terrible that Wolf Blitzer was able to posture as a warrior for the working class and to present himself as <laughs> someone who cared about people who had to wait wait in in food pantry lines. So. Um, well, Nolan, um, I te- no. go ahead. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, I teach, I teach about um, entitlement in my classes, and that was like one of the prime examples of entitlement. Um, the fact he asked her like a basic softball <laughs> journalism question, and she was so insulted that it didn't fit with her narrative that she, she was upset with him, and the two of them like had this bickering match. It was just an illustration of how comfortable both these people in the media and the political class are. So I think that's a really important clip, but I hope we – keep coming back to it's an illustration of our problems at some point. All right. Well, thank you for this wide ranging conversation. Unfortunately, um, Rania had to run off cause she's, uh, uh, she had something to do with family. So I'm here to conclude the show and to thank you, Nolan, for joining us this week. And, uh, again, just so people know you're a lecturer in media studies. Uh, you co-host the along the lines podcast. Uh, and you do some work for project censored and you wrote this book, The Anatomy of Fake News, which is exceptionally relevant to all of our heightened anxieties about what will or will not happen on Election Day. We hear ceaselessly about alleged disinformation operations that actually are real or not real, and there's fake news about them as well. And uh, so we're very glad that you were able to join us on Unauthorized Disclosure. So thank you, Nolan. Thank you so much for having me. This was great.